Thanks for downloading this message from Devoted, the Christ Central Festival for all the family. Christ Central is part of New Frontiers, and our distinctives are made up of four priorities. Being friends enjoying God together, building churches empowered by word and spirit, advancing the kingdom transforming the world, and reaching nations making disciples. Devoted is just one event, but you can find out more about Christ Central and other training opportunities at ChristCentralChurches.org. For more about Devoted, please visit DevotedEvent.org. Thanks for listening. See you next time. So how many guys have heard Adrian all the way before? Give us a wave if you've heard Adrian before. A few of you, fantastic. You're in for a real treat today. Uh, Adrian's a good friend, and uh, he's working full-time as an evangelist across the UK and into other nations, and he's devoted himself to this. He's literally living the Philip the Evangelist in the book of Acts. He, he's still all unmarried, aren't they? He's still young. Four unmarried daughters, right? Adrian's living, living the Philip the Evangelist thing in the book of Acts, who also had four unmarried daughters. Uh, he's, he's just going to the letter of the book. It's amazing. Uh, but let's give a, a big round of applause for Adrian, who's going to look at science and faith today. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you very much. Great. Okay. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's lovely to be here. And uh, Chris has invited me to have a look at this question, which you might come across. And so I plan to speak for 35 minutes, and then we will have uh, some time for question and answer. So you can ask absolutely anything that you'd like to ask, either about this subject or about anything else that occurs to you. Okay, I think that there is no need to see science and God as enemies. And I could uh, illustrate this perhaps by introducing you to some brilliant scientists who do believe in God. Probably we could demonstrate this more, well, beyond reasonable doubt, simply by going now on a coach to the English city of Cambridge. Because in Cambridge there are a very large number of scientists, leading scientists, who are Bible-believing Christians and members of churches in that town. For example, there's Professor Russell Coburn. Uh, So he's one of the leading physicists at Cambridge University. He's a Bible-believing Christian. Now, Russell Coburn says that it's actually through doing science that his belief in the existence of God has been strengthened and his faith has grown. There are lots of reasons why I think God exists. Here are my top four. Now let's imagine that you have a friend, uh, maybe someone you've come across, someone in your world, and they're one of those people who's convinced that science has buried God. So they don't listen to anything that you have to say on points one or points two, which are science-related. Well, there are still on my little list, these are just the top four, there's still point three and point four. So I thought just for a couple of minutes, maybe we just talk about point three and point four. Point three has to do with evidence from the existence of objective moral values and duties. And the good news is that this is actually much more straightforward than you might think. Have a look at this moral argument for the existence of God. Now, just in terms of premise one, things have changed uh, here in Western Europe since the Second World War. Back in the 1950s, here in Britain, lots of people lived as if God existed. 
There was lots of Christian moral behavior. In fact, most people, the consensus was that people, even if they didn't believe all the Bible stuff and tick all the boxes in terms of all the evangelical Christian beliefs, they lived in such a way that fitted in with the society around them and people followed a, a, a broadly moral Christian worldview. Now, in the 1960s, that began to change. By the 1970s, 80s, 90s, things changed quite considerably so that now, today, we meet people quite often who would say, hey, hang on a minute, if God doesn't exist, well, then I'm free to do whatever I want, yeah? And we would think that's a fairly reasonable, logical, none of us would be shocked to hear someone say that. But if our grandparents had heard somebody say, oh, well, if God doesn't exist, and that, that means I'm completely free to do whatever I want, our grandparents would have been a little bit alarmed by that because it would have sounded really different from what most people think. So all I'm saying is that more and more people, especially young people, people of your age, would go along with premise three. They'd be quite happy to go along with premise three. Oh, sorry, sorry the, the first premise of the third point here, premise one of the argument. When it comes to the second premise, the same phenomenon is occurring. More and more people are happy to go along with premise two. I find more and more people these days will say, for example, that rape is wrong. But it's not just wrong right now. I think rape is wrong in Western Europe in 2016. More and more people would say it's always been wrong. In fact, even if you came across a society, I don't know, a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago, where they were saying that in some circumstances rape was okay, they'd be wrong to say that rape is okay. It's always been wrong. Here's another thing that people will say today. Adults interfering with underage boys is wrong. But not just wrong in Western Europe in the 21st century, it's always been wrong. If it happened a thousand years ago, too, even if there were a society somewhere in history that thought that that was okay, that society would be wrong to say it's okay. So more and more people believe that there really are things like rape, like interfering with little children, that are absolutely objectively morally wrong. Now if you put premise one, which is very popular today, and premise two, which is very popular today, together, that is a really good argument for the existence of God. Let's have a look at the fourth on my little list. This is all to do with evidence for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It turns out that um, there are lots of different academics, theologians, who study the evidence for the resurrection. Some of them are atheists, some of them are agnostics, some of them are Christians. But if we look at the books and the articles that they write, it's easy for us, it takes a long time, to uh, tabulate, work out which of the different facts about the resurrection are most popular amongst even historians who oppose the resurrection. Here are four of the top minimal facts. So these are facts that even people who don't think that Jesus rose from the dead, they're happy to go along with these facts. Firstly, that Jesus was crucified and died as a result. Secondly, that Jesus' tomb was empty. Thirdly, that Jesus' disciples believed that he rose and that he appeared to them. And fourthly, the conversion of the anti-Christian persecutor of the Christian church, Saul of Tarsus. So, academics who aren't Bible-believing Christians, who aren't worshipping and following Jesus, they're happy to go along. These are all facts 
that the vast majority of academics, even those opposed to Christianity, would agree are historical facts. One of the reasons, probably the main number one reason why I became a Christian in the first place is because it turns out that the resurrection explanation of these four facts outdistances all the other competing hypotheses by such a large margin. The resurrection explanation of these facts is the only explanation that can accommodate all the known facts. These are the facts that aren't in dispute. Now you might be wondering by this point in our little talk here, isn't this a seminar about science? Why are you mentioning the moral argument? Why are you talking about the resurrection? The reason is because even if it were to turn out that there is no good scientific evidence to think that God exists, that actually would not show that God does not exist because there might well be other good reasons to think that God exists. For example, there might be a moral argument for the existence of God. I think we've seen that there is. There might be historical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. And if Jesus rose from the dead, having predicted that he would, having said that he would validate his claim to be God by demonstrating it by rising physically from the dead, that would be good reason to think God must exist. So all of this just to show that although we might think this is the $64 million question of science versus God, even if there's no good evidence for the existence of God from the world of science, that wouldn't actually show that atheism is correct. Okay, well, let's get into the question that we have before us in terms of hasn't science buried God? I think I should tell you that um, I used to be a skeptic as far as Christianity was concerned, so I didn't go to church. I didn't have any friends who went to church. I could never have imagined. You know when you think about what will I do with my life? I would never ever imagine that I would be standing here in front of you talking about this. This is the last thing I thought I'd be doing. But as you can probably tell from the fact that I am standing here, I do now think that God exists. I'm personally not aware of any scientific discovery that has buried God. Because it seems to me, anyway, that science and God are answering different questions. I think that those people who see them as opposites or enemies, I think those people are comparing apples with oranges. The existence of apples does not rule out the existence of oranges, and vice versa. Science provides superb explanations for how things happen. And the advance of science should be cheered and applauded by all of us. But if we were to ask the question, why? Why did something happen? For example, why is there something rather than nothing? How come the universe began to exist. Why did the universe begin to exist? I want to suggest that God may well turn out to be a perfectly valid, reasonable, viable explanation for that why question. This book is uh, a an autobiography. It's the story of a geneticist called Francis Collins. It's, a, it's fascinating. It's, he tells his story of how halfway through his academic career as a scientist, he became a Christian. He was an atheist who converted to Christianity uh, during his career as a medical doctor and as a scientist. And after becoming a Christian, Francis Collins was appointed director of the Human Genome Project. And in 2003, he announced to the world that he had successfully mapped the entire human genome. This is one of the most astounding scientific advances of all time. Has science buried God? Well... Clearly not in the opinion of 
many leading scientists like Francis Collins who believe in God, so they see no trade-off between believing in God and doing science for a living. Francis Collins is one of many keen Christians who are outstanding scientists, and they say that juxtaposing science and God as opposites, they say that is a category mistake. Now, what do they mean by a category mistake? Well, let's imagine that I decide to make a cup of tea. Let's imagine that at some point, while the kettle is boiling, scientists Kelvin and Joule discover the precise mechanism whereby heat is turned into boiling water. So we now know how the water boiled. We have discovered the mechanism. But it would be a mistake to say, because we've discovered the mechanism, I don't exist. It's a mistake because you could still quite accurately say, the reason why the kettle boiled is because I wanted to make a cup of tea. To say, we've discovered the mechanism, therefore Adrian Holloway doesn't exist, that would be a category mistake. So we don't need an adversarial either-or explanation. And it seems most people in Britain actually agree with this. A European Commission poll found that 78% of people in the UK believe in God and or the supernatural. And these are the very same British adults who have more scientific knowledge than any preceding generation. So it seems that even in this modern technological age, most British people actually don't see science and God as enemies. They don't see it as an either-or. Most British people today do see science and God as a both-and. And so having heard that kind of reply, I then said, okay, maybe you're right, science hasn't buried God, but come on. As we learn more and more through science, the Bible's version of events does look increasingly unlikely, yes? Well, that is certainly not the case when it comes to the origin of the universe, the fine-tuning of the universe, and the origin of organic life. So let's see if I can explain what I mean. Firstly, then, regarding the origin of the universe. Up until the late 1920s, atheists used to argue that the universe was eternal. Just accept it, they said, it's always been there and they used to argue that way because at the time, the universe was thought to be locked in a static, steady state. And then an American astronomer called Edwin Hubble took a series of photographs in 1929 which proved that the universe is not locked in a static, steady state. Hubble saw that the other galaxies are moving away from us and from each other. And the easiest way for us to imagine what Hubble saw is to use a balloon. So. Perhaps you'd like to imagine with me for a moment that these stars on my daughter's balloon are actually galaxies. What Hubble saw is that all the galaxies are moving away from each other and actually they're moving away from us. In fact, wherever we look in the universe, this is what's happening. So cosmologists concluded the universe is expanding. And if the universe is expanding, then in the past, they concluded it must have been much smaller than it is today. They concluded at one time the universe was no bigger than this balloon. They discovered that at one time 
the universe did have a beginning. And then, in 1965, astronomers Robert Wilson and Arno Penzias discovered some background radiation in the universe that had been left behind by this beginning moment. The radiation is like a signature that's left behind by this beginning moment. And so today, there is an overwhelming scientific consensus that at one time, the universe did have a beginning. Let me put the same thing to you a different way. Imagine if I said to you that 13.7 billion years ago, there was absolutely nothing. And then a fraction of a second later, there was a huge purple carrot the size of the Newark showground. I put it to you that the sudden dramatic appearance of the huge carrot would demand some kind of explanation. You see, it is not that matter and energy exploded into an already existing space-time universe, no. Space and time themselves began to exist at this beginning moment. We now know that the universe came into existence suddenly, out of nothing. And this discovery supports the second step of a simple case for the existence of God. Step one says that everything that begins to exist has a cause. Now, this sounds reasonable. At least we don't know of any exceptions to step one. Step two says that the universe began to exist. And that is the reigning scientific orthodoxy today. That is the standard model. So the conclusion necessarily follows that the universe has a cause. Something or someone that is outside of time and space caused the universe to come into being. You and I base our lives on the law of cause and effect. So to get a universe out of nothing, you need a cause. And a cause that's capable of bringing space, time, matter and energy into existence, well, you could call that first cause God. So, I looked at the origin of the universe. Next, the fine-tuning of the universe. Now, we know that if we were just 5% closer to the sun, we'd fry. We know if we were 5% further away, we'd freeze. We know that there would be no life on Earth if we were even slightly different from where we are. We know our solar system just happens to be in what astronomers call the Goldilocks zone, of our Milky Way. This is in between the Sagittarius and Perseus spiral arms. Maybe you can see the little yellow letters. Uh, well, that's where we are. That, that's a rare, safe place in our Milky Way. But the degree of fine-tuning that we're talking about when we are talking about the beginning of the universe, it's far more impressive than any of this. No, the... the at the beginning of the universe, there is an explosion which causes matter to fly outwards, but this matter flies outwards at a perfectly controlled speed. Too fast an expansion, and nothing will ever settle down. There won't ever be a universe. You would never exist. But too slow an expansion, and oh, the universe just collapses and never gets going in the first place. So the universe expands, but the speed of the expansion turns out to be critical. If slowed down too much, the universe collapses back on itself. 
Folks, if the rate of expansion one second after the beginning moment had been smaller by even one part in a hundred million, billion, 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 the universe would have recollapsed before it ever reached its present size. And the speed of the expansion is controlled by something called the cosmological constant. And that is the energy density of empty space. So the cosmological constant, it can't be just any old number. No, in order for life to exist, the value of the cosmological constant has to be fine-tuned to a very precise number. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. But, as you can see, it's not just the cosmological constant, which is four up from the bottom. It turns out that all of these numbers, all of these values, have to be just so in order for you to be living on the surface of this planet. Any messing with any of these 20 values, 20 numbers, and no people would ever have existed. Roger Penrose, who helped develop our, our current understanding of black holes, he has worked out or the chances of one of these factors, entropy. Entropy is, as you know, the speed at which things break down and decay in the universe. The chance that entropy would have the value that it does have, here's the chance. One chance in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Now, that is a number that has more zeros on the end of it than the total number of particles in the entire universe. But entropy is just one of the 20 factors. We have to have all 20 for us to be here. So, question, why is our universe so unlikely? Answer, because of the number, the large number of competing forces that have to be perfectly balanced in the earliest seconds of the universe's existence. It turns out that gravity and electromagnetism have to just bing, exist, but not just exist. They then have to be finely tuned to their relative values. The same is true of matter and antimatter. The same is true of neutrons and electrons. The same is true of the strong and the weak nuclear force. Any messing with any of these numbers, you touch any of these dials and there's no universe and no life. Let's take gravity, for example. Just imagine with me for a moment that this tape measure was so long that it stretched from one side of the universe over here to the opposite side of the universe over here. If it did, that would genuinely represent the entire possible range of force strengths for gravity. So over here, we have the weakest possible gravitational force, and over here, we have the strongest possible gravitational force. Now let's imagine that gravity on Earth is currently set here. Now let's imagine that I want to increase the strength of gravity on Earth by a tiny amount, by just two and a half centimeters from here to here, on this vast scale. Folks, scientists have discovered that this tiny increase from here to here would increase the strength of gravity on Earth by a billion-fold? It would mean that there would never have been any life on Earth? This tiny increase from here to here would have meant that planet Earth would have had a maximum diameter of just 12 meters. Planet Earth would never have been any bigger than this building. But that's gravity. That's just one of our 
20 forces. Scientists have established there's two of those 20 on the list that have to be fine-tuned to each other to a precision of one part in 10 to the power 40. Now, we can't visualize what these numbers look like, but it just so happens that Dr. Hugh Ross of Toronto University, he's got a famous illustration of the 1 in 10 to the power 40 chance, and it goes like this. Hugh Ross says, cover a continent the size of North America with small coins. And he says, then pile your coins up so high that they reach 236,000 miles, in other words, the distance from here to the moon. Then he says, take another 1 billion continents, also the size of North America, and cover them with small coins. And again, pile your coins up 236,000 miles up the distance from here to the moon. He then says, take one additional coin. But this time, paint the one additional coin red. And then hide your red coin somewhere in one of the one billion piles, all of which are the size of North America, all of which reach 236,000 miles up to the moon. And then, after you've done that, he says, invite a member of the public and ask them, would they like to participate in a scientific experiment? If they say yes, you blindfold this stranger, and then you invite them to pick a coin, any coin the chance that they will pick out the one red coin first time is a 1 in 10 to the power 40 chance. That is what we need for just two of our list of 20 to be perfectly balanced as they are, but in order for you to exist, all 20 have to be just so. Folks, I reached a point where I realised that in any other area of my life, I would never accept luck or chance as the best explanation for the facts that are... Okay, we're going to look at a DVD clip now. Um, And this is all to do with the origin of organic life. Okay, well... Uh, With the benefit of computer animation, uh, we can have a look at a a remarkable system at work. And this is all to do with the origin of organic life. What we're going to do is we're going to have a look for just 90 seconds inside a cell. A cell like, for example, the cells inside your body. In fact, we're going to look at something that's happening in your body right now. How cells multiply and how life continues to exist. Once we're inside the heart of a cell, we can see here the tightly wound strands of DNA. And these are storehouses that, are, that contain the instructions needed in order to build every single protein in an organism. And in a process known as transcription, a molecular machine first unwinds the DNA helix to expose the genetic instructions that are needed in order to assemble a specific protein molecule. Then what happens is that another molecular machine copies these instructions and this forms a molecule known as messenger RNA. And when this transcription process is complete, this slender RNA strand carries the genetic information through the nuclear pore complex. There it is. Uh, It's like a gatekeeper for traffic in and out of the cell. It actually knocks on the door. It's all very British. 
and uh, eventually it leaves the cell nucleus. This messenger RNA strand is then directed to a two-part molecular factory. This thing is called a ribosome. And there, after it's attached itself securely, the process of translation begins. This next bit is really clever. Inside the ribosome, a molecular assembly line builds a specifically sequenced chain of amino acids. Now you can see here, these amino acids are being transported from other parts of the cell, and then they're linked into chains. These chains are often hundreds of units long, and it's their sequential arrangement that determines the type of protein that's being manufactured here. Now, all of this, of course, is determined by your unique genetic DNA code uh, that was embedded in that double helical structure that we saw right back at the beginning of our video. But when this chain is finished, it's moved from the ribosome into this barrel-shaped machine, and here it's folded into the precise chain shape that is critical to its function. And it's somewhat awe-inspiring to think that while we're watching this animated on the screen, exactly this is happening in each and every one of our bodies, which is how come we're still alive. Yeah? And anyway, after the chain is folded into a protein, it's released and shepherded by this other molecular machine. Here it comes. How cool is that? And it's taken to the exact location where it's needed. So, the origin of DNA is a problem for any chance theory. The DNA code tells the amino acids to arrange themselves in a special sequence. As you know, a longer stretch of code is called a gene. The point is that information-rich messages that can reproduce life don't just happen. But when DNA arrives on the scene, it's an instruction book. This looks like forward planning. So the question is, where did the DNA code come from in the first ever living cell? Shall I just recap? DNA is an information code. It can be written down in letters. It exists inside the cell. It has to exist in order for the cell to work and reproduce itself. This begs the question, where did the information come from in the first ever cell? The information is written in a code, so the code and the means of translating the code have to both come online at exactly the same moment, because one of those two things is useless without the other. This presents a massive problem for any chance theory of life. The man who discovered the structure of DNA, Sir Francis Crick, he said, that seeing as life could never have come into existence on this planet by chance, it must have been transported here by prehistoric spaceship. He says in his book, Life Itself, microorganisms traveled in the head of an unmanned spaceship sent to Earth by a higher civilization which developed elsewhere billions of years ago. That, if nothing else, shows the scale of the problem. You cannot get life starting on this planet by chance. It can't happen. There must be some other explanation. He goes for prehistoric spaceships. 
but the problem's there. It seems to me, incidentally, he hasn't solved the problem. It seems to me that he's just moved the problem. There are other huge problems here on the screen that we don't have time to go into. But let's just see as we close, and I'm in the last minute now, let's just see if we can draw some of these threads together. Nothing that I've said today, as I'm sure you've noticed, proves that God exists. I'll just repeat that so that we are all absolutely clear. Nothing that I have said today proves that God exists. But if you were to look for the inference to the best explanation, then whether you look at the origin of the universe, or secondly, if you look at the fine-tuning of the universe, or thirdly, if you look at the origin of biological information, in all three cases, what seems to be needed is a transcendent intelligence first cause. Now, you could call a transcendent intelligent first cause God. So it seems to me, folks, in conclusion, that science hasn't buried God. It seems to me that God's existence is a reasonable, viable explanation for the existence of the universe, for the fine-tuning of the universe, and for the existence of life. Thank you very much for listening to me. You've been very patient. Thank you very much. Okay. Great. Okay, well, I said I'd speak for 35 minutes, and I said we've got some time for questions. So if you've got a question about anything I've said or anything else, um, I'm quite used to doing this, so I'm very happy to have a go. Uh, If you want to put your hand up, ask anything you'd like, I'll do my best. So any questions? Anyone want to ask anything? Yeah. Uh, so you said that if any of the numbers would have been different, the universe would not exist. How would, do we know that it would not exist rather than just being different? Okay, so I'll, I know that you've used the microphone, but I'll just repeat the question so that everybody's got the question. You said if any of the numbers have been different, I said the universe wouldn't exist. And your question is to do with maybe the existence of other possible universes? So... Uh, not just uh, so life as we know it is what we see basically okay. and if one of the numbers would have been differed by like as you said just a little bit yeah. how do we know that it just would not have been different I'm not talking about multiverse just like the lighting is okay so a different form of life okay yeah. so for example ooh, about 30 years ago um, people began to speculate could there be life that isn't carbon based life could there be silicon based life for example Now, that idea has gone right out of fashion. And interestingly enough, the consensus now is that the only life that could ever exist on any planet would have to be carbon-based life. So, that would fit in. (laughs) That's a good question. I misunderstood it, but it was a very good question. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, it's kind of like more of a, an ethical thing from a, a Christian perspective um, and speaking around other Christians and, and debating things what's, what's kind of a responsible way to ask questions like, I always worry that I'm going to ask something that's, that someone might not have thought of that causes them to doubt like how you do as a Christian can you ask a question When's not okay? When's like reasonable doubt and when's 
Okay, are, are you asking about Christians talking to Christians? I, I am, yeah. Oh, cool, okay. Yeah, again, yeah sorry. I was a little bit slow on the uptake there. It's a, it's yeah. a good question, but again, I didn't quite get it first time around. Yeah, so I think you're asking, you don't want to cause Christians to start having doubts that they didn't have before. Yes. So when is it good? And this, I really want to know where this question is coming from, because I wonder if it's coming out of your life experience, but we don't have time for that right now. But um, Okay, so let me give you an example. I thought that when I said, has anyone got a question, I felt absolutely confident that the first question would be, what about evolution? I was amazed that that wasn't the first question, because every time I've ever presented this material, the first question is always, what about evolution? Okay? When it comes to that, Christians take different views, and I could outline three different views about evolution. One of those three views might really throw someone who's been brought up in a Bible-believing home. Wow, you think that? And so, when I'm presenting that view, I work really hard to show how people take that view seriously, how they genuinely believe it, how they work from the Bible and get that conclusion. Even if I happen to disagree with the conclusion, I try and show a lot of respect for how they got there. And so, I try and say, for example, that there are people in my church that take that view. There are lots of things that Christians agree about, and then there are other things that Christians can disagree about, but they can still be in the same church worship Jesus. So in the meeting that we just had, there's 1,500 people, and all three of these different views about evolution will be represented in the room. But everybody has their hands in the air, everybody's singing the same songs, nothing bad has happened. Do you know what I mean? That's, that's what I've got in mind. Any other questions? Yeah, that's right. Um, so I was just wondering if you, um, particularly when you're trying to evangelize the people and um, you meet someone who's coming from a very much old science, it's kind of, as, as you said, very, very thing that they won't listen to um, kind of what you're trying to present to them. Is there anything you could recommend either resource-wise um, that maybe you could give them or something to make them like really, like encourage them to think, oh, I've had a few times where like, you try, I would try and present this case and they're like, well, you're discretion, I'm not going to listen to you, kind of thing, and they'd want to hear from like someone more respected or, like, or in the scientific community? Yes. So I personally recommend one particular website, and it's www.reasons.org. The reason why I recommend reasons.org is twofold. One, because when you first call up that homepage, there are three boxes. I believe, I doubt, I disbelieve. And so all of the content and the entire website is organized under those three headings. So if you click on I disbelieve, you don't think you're doing anything weird or strange. You think, okay, this, this website's going to work for me because I don't believe any of this stuff. So everything's organized under those headings. So I recommend reasons.org. Now, I should also add, reasons.org is something, uh, is a, one of those views on evolution that I mentioned. It's, it's what's called old earth creationism. So if you're here today, and you are a young earth creationist, or you're a theistic evolutionist, you wouldn't agree with all the content that's on that website. But I still think that's a great resource. And I've recommended it time and again, and heard some great feedback from people. Yeah, at the back.
Okay. Thank you for your question. Um, I agree 100% with what you're saying, so it doesn't cause a problem. What I'd love to do in answering your question is to help everybody in terms of where your question is coming from, because your question presents a problem only for those Christians who subscribe to Young Earth Creationism, which I don't. So maybe I can just help everybody if I just run through the three different views, and then you'll see how on view two and view three, there's absolutely no problem at all, because I think that the first life on Earth was 3.8 billion years ago. And I agree with you that that life was obliterated. Yeah? So shall I do that? So nothing bad's going to happen. I'll just help everybody in the room, okay? All right, here we go. Okay, here's three different views that Christians sometimes take uh, on the question of evolution. The first of those views is called young earth creationism. And uh, this is the view that the earth is young. This view says that the earth is no more than 20 to 30,000 years old. So if you ask the young earth creationist, what about all the fossils? Um, aren't they millions of years old? They would typically reply, no. Those fossils are not millions of years old. Those fossils were all laid down relatively recently during Noah's flood. If you ask the young earth creationist, what? Um, how about the dinosaurs? I mean, aren't the dinosaurs between 250 million and 65 million years old? They say, no, 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 no. All dinosaurs lived and died thousands of years ago, not millions of years ago. So young earth creationists, they say that the days in Genesis chapter 1 are best understood as literal 24-hour days. This interpretation of the Bible is taken by the vast majority of Bible-believing churches in the USA um, and has been so for many years. Young Earth creationists are adamant that evolution has not taken place, by which they mean evolution on a large scale or macroevolution. So just to explain this, everyone alive today agrees that microevolution has taken place, yeah? You get variations, you get adaptions, you get small horses becoming big horses, you can breed endless varieties of dogs, you get bacteria that develop resistance to antibiotics. Of course, in nature you get the survival of the fittest, you get the weak being killed by the strong. Everyone agrees. Natural selection is a fact of life, there isn't any dispute about microevolution. All Christians agree with microevolution. As far as I know, everybody on the planet agrees that microevolution, evolution on a small scale, has taken place. What young earth creationists challenge is evolution on a large scale. They don't buy the spectacular story of how amoebas evolved into fish, how fish evolved into reptiles, how reptiles evolved into birds, and then at the top of the tree, this is the bit that we're most familiar with, where you get uh, monkeys becoming people. They don't agree with common descent. They don't go for one species evolving into another into another over millions of years. So young earth creationists don't believe that all living things on the planet today are descended from a common ancestor which would be the first single-celled organism. So they don't believe in common descent. Okay? So this is one view taken by Christians. Now we move to a second view. This view is old earth creationism. This is the view that I referred to when we had the question and I recommended the reasons.org website. This view, as the name implies, says that the Earth is old. 
Uh, this view is happy to go along with the modern scientific consensus today, which says that the universe is 13.7 billion years old and that the Earth is 4.5 billion years old. These guys argue that the Hebrew word yom, which is translated as day in Genesis chapter 1, that word can mean a long period of time. And they say that even in the book of Genesis, it definitely is used to refer to a long period of time, longer than 24 hours. So they say it's a bit like in a history book. You might read, in the day of Queen Victoria, London doubled in size. But you wouldn't think, oh, in 24 hours, London doubled in size. No, you'd think of that as a phrase that could mean a long period of time. They think that the creation days were longer than 24 hours. Now, the old earth creationists do agree with the young earth creationists that common descent has not taken place. The old earth creationists do think that Adam and Eve were the special creation of God, that they were the first anatomically modern humans that ever lived on our planet. They argue that even with life starting on Earth 3.8 billion years ago, that is still not enough time for gradual step-by-step macro-evolution to have got us all the way from one amoeba to modern humans. Now, here's the thing. Old Earth creationists do accept that there were hominids who lived on Earth before us humans ever came along. They're happy to accept, for example, that Chidensis was a hominid that lived in Chad seven million years ago in Africa, that Ardipithecus ramidus lived between six and five million years ago, that Afarensis lived between four and three million years ago, that Homo habilis lived two million years ago, that Homo agaster lived between 1.8 million and 0.5 million years ago, and most recently, the hominid that most of us are most familiar with, are the Neanderthals who lived between 150,000 and 30,000 years ago. But the old earth creationists say that although these are bipeds, none of the hominids I just mentioned are related to us. They are, spiritually speaking, animals who went extinct. None of them are our ancestors. That's the second view. A third view is sometimes called theistic evolution. And these guys, in stark contrast to the previous two views, they accept macroevolution. They accept common descent. They argue that God was guiding the process. Some of them say that God got involved to get us over a few barriers to our evolutionary process, particularly the barriers that we actually saw at the micro uh, level in terms of miniature or molecular biology. But either with more or less divine intervention, the point is that theistic evolutionists agree with the consensus today, which says common descent has taken place. So they say, yes, we modern humans, we are descended from an ancestor that we once shared with a chimpanzee. Now, of course, a question that theistic evolutionists get asked all the time is, what about Adam and Eve? And here there are a number of different models that they suggest. It's important for us to understand that evolutionary biologists say that evolution has happened in populations. So one theistic view says there was a population of hominids within which there was one couple, the Bible calls them Adam and Eve, 
And these two look similar to all the other hominids living around them, but something unique happened to them. God sent his spirit into these two people, and they became spiritually different. They were recreated in the image of God, and so they're like a representative couple in a big group. They weren't the only people around that looked like them. Lots of people looked like them, but in God's eyes, these two became special. So theistic evolutionists would say, for example, Genesis 2.7, we read, The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And they'd read that verse and they'd say, yeah, so God is making something out of what he previously made. Or Genesis 1.24, where it says, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. And they'd say, yeah, so sounds like the earth, that nature is doing some of the work. And so they hey, they say maybe there is scope from, for Adam being descended from a non-human ancestor. Now the point I want to make is not, I haven't come here to try and persuade you that one of these views is correct and that the others are wrong, but I would want to make this point that all three of these views are taken by sincere Christians who want to treat the Bible seriously. Obviously they do interpret the early chapters of Genesis differently. In our church, you'll find all three of these views represented and a number of other views as well. I hope that helps in terms of the debate. Any other questions? Yeah, at the back. Thank you for asking. I'll just repeat the question for anybody who didn't hear it. Um, she was explaining that one question that she often gets asked is what about homosexuality, even to the point where sometimes people might assume that because you're a Bible-believing Christian that you're homophobic. Have I come across that? Uh, yes, very often. Um, so, oh wow, how long have we got? <laughs> so I've got a, a, a whole load of stuff, I think, to say on this subject. At the moment, I've got a talk where I suggest nine different approaches for how to answer that question. The reason why I'm stumbling and hesitating is not because I find it hard to answer the question, but because what I say when I'm asked that question depends so much on who's asking. I've found there's a massive difference between answering that question to somebody who is homosexual and is in a same-sex relationship from somebody else who's heterosexual. So there's all sorts of different approaches. So sometimes I just agree. Sometimes I tell them about examples of the church being homophobic. And all I do is apologize. With some other people, I'll take a completely different approach and I'll say, oh, the situation is much worse than you think it is. And they'll say, what? And I'll say, because actually, once you're inside the evangelical Christian worldview, all sex outside of a marriage between a man and a woman is off limits. So for that person, they're learning that it's not that God is obsessively angry about gay sex or has a particular thing about that. 
is that actually if you're a Bible-believing Christian, all sex outside of marriage in a man and a woman is off-limits. So that, some people, they'll think, oh, okay, so this is a bigger question than just, you know, Christians wake up in the, moment, in, in the morning and think about homosexuality and have a problem with gay sex. No, it, it's bigger than that. With some people, I will just talk about why does the Bible so highly prize the marriage or sex within the marriage of a man and a woman and what is that supposed to be a picture of? And I'll just talk to them simply about, at the end of time, the marriage between Jesus and the church, and I'll explain the theology of that. And I'll explain that if you have Jesus and Jesus, you don't have the church. Or if at the end of time you have the church and the church you don't have Jesus on one view, you've got no Jesus in heaven. On another view, <laughs> but basically it only works if you have a unity of difference. And therefore, a marriage of a man and a woman is a visual aid that God uses to show unity and diversity. And so there's a theological problem with sex between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. And again, sometimes people get that and think, Oh, so this is all much more complex than I thought. But most of the time, if you were to say, okay, what's the most common answer you give? The most common answer I give is this. I say, hey, I would not expect you to sympathize or sign up to the evangelical, Bible-believing, Christian view of same-sex sex. I wouldn't expect you to agree with it. But, let's imagine two years from now, you did go on a journey over the next two years whereby two years from now in two years time you have become a Bible believing Christian, you sign up to all the things that the Bible teaches once you're inside that worldview, here's some of the things that you think you would think for example that Adam and Eve were real people and that actually they came from one flesh and so when Jesus quotes that verse from Genesis 1 or Genesis 2, you'd think that there really is a one flesh union. If you took that view, you'd think that something's happening spiritually when two people of different sexes have sex with each other, and that they become one flesh. And so you'd agree, for example, with the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul's problem with people having sex with prostitutes is that they become one, sex, one flesh with that prostitute. You think that the one flesh union of a man and a woman is a real thing in the real world. And so once you're inside the biblical worldview, what the Bible says about same-sex sex makes sense, but until you're inside the biblical worldview, I wouldn't expect you to, to understand, sympathize. I would probably think exactly what you think. Now, I have found some people get that, you know, we've got this worldview, and within our worldview, actually what the Bible says about same-sex sex does fit in with everything else. It fits in, for example, with the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, you haven't just got Jesus and Jesus, you've got Jesus and the church. It all makes sense once you're inside the biblical worldview, but I wouldn't expect you to sign up to Christian morality on day one before you believe, for example, that the Bible is the Word of God. So usually the conversation ends up with me saying, the only way I can really see this working would be if you came across good reasons to think that the Bible is the Word of God. And if you came across good reasons to think the Bible is the Word of God, and you decided this is the best description of reality, 
then I can imagine that your views might change, perhaps. But until you think there's good reason to trust the Bible, I don't see there's any reason why you should agree with me. And so we agree to disagree. And maybe I can present reasons to think that the Bible is the Word of God. And then we have a discussion about that, or even better, we can have a discussion about Jesus. Because if they come to think that Jesus is the Son of God, then it's worth thinking about and exploring. So, um, I've, I've given you a couple of ideas in terms of things that I say, but with some people, as I say, I don't say any of that stuff when I go off and take different approaches. So, maybe we can talk at the end. I can show you a link to my talk, the nine different things that I say. So, there we are. I mean, that's, that's there. Quick recrimination on that one uh, reading recently called The Plausibility Problem by Ed Shaw. I don't know if you've read that one. Yeah, I have, yeah. It's a very good book and helps really kind of tackle that issue. Uh, I know it's a massive one for those at university in, in your age. Can I just make a comment on that? The reason why I'd recommend that book that Chris has just mentioned is because it's written by someone who is attractive to people of the same sex. The biggest problem that I have answering this question is that I'm a heterosexual 47-year-old bloke who's married with four kids. And when I present material on this subject, it's not nearly as plausible as when somebody stands up and says, well, actually, I've always been attracted to people of the same sex. Nothing's changed. I've been, what, 25 years heading down this road? I'm still attracted to people of the same sex, but it just so happens that I'm a Christian. And that comes over a lot better. And so this book is like a testimony to plausibility problem and it's really um, winsome. Um, but, yeah, thank you, Chris. Um, is it possible to answer the question of the existence of God and the existence of evil without referring to the existence of free will? Is it possible to... Could you just ask the question is it, again? Is you, it possible to yeah. find a solution to yeah. the existence of God and the existence of evil without referring to the existence of free will? Is it possible to find a solution to the problem of the existence of God and the existence of evil without referring to the problem of free will? Um, some people would say yes, but in every attempt that I give to answer that question, I would always include free will in my answer. So I don't think free will is the total explanation, so I would have four points that I mention in answer to that question. And one of those is free will, because the, I think free will is the best explanation of human evil. Free will is not the best explanation of natural evil, earthquakes, tornadoes, volcanoes. Free will does not speak to that objection, but it is a really good way of understanding how come there are murders. How come Hitler decided to liquidate the Jews? You know, when you're talking about that kind of stuff, free will is a vital part of a Christian response. Good question. You just keep going until Chris says stop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Yes, go for it. What would you say to someone who says things like, if there's a God, why is there cancer in children who haven't done anything wrong and stuff like that? To okay. someone who isn't a Christian. Yeah. So, on that question, um, first of all, I would be trying to work out is, do they know someone who, have they got like a nephew or a cousin or a brother or a sister who's died of cancer? Because if they have, 
I'm not going to attempt any kind of explanation. I'm just going to seek to express, as best I can, Christian sympathy for them as a person. I want to mourn with them, I want to grieve with them. They might want an answer, but if I attempt some sort of theological, philosophical response, that's going to make things worse for them. If it's someone who hasn't, then I would say something like this. One of the problems that we have is that in our language, in English, you and I would talk about suffering in such a way that suffering would include sickness. However, when the Bible writers are writing the Bible, there is a distinction between suffering so, for example, Christians are called to suffer. The Apostle Paul suffered for the Gospel. But sickness is something that's different. So whereas I would say, yes, I think it's part of God's will that there will be suffering in the world, there's clear evidence in the Bible that God never intended sickness to be in the world. So that's my first point. Then the question comes, okay, so what happens to those people who do die young? Let's say there's a child who dies of some terrible disease when they're one or two years old. And then I've got a number of reasons why I think that that child goes to heaven. In no particular order, one of them is the Bible verse, an episode in the life of King David, where he uh, has a child with Bathsheba, and he's praying like Bilio that this child won't die. And the child does die. And rather than uh, he's been praying and fasting that the child would live, but then the way he responds to the bereavement is that he expects to see the child again. Which immediately makes me think, oh well, so children go to heaven. The way that Jesus speaks to children, when he says, allow the little children to come to me, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I think, okay, so Jesus definitely thinks that the kingdom of heaven belongs to them, and he holds up childlike faith as the example for all adults to follow. I mean, there are loads of reasons why I think children go to heaven. So I think there's an age of responsibility. I don't know what that age is, whether it's 12 or 13 or 14 or whatever the age is, but there's a point at which we do become responsible for our sins. Now, that might not help the person that's asking, but it might help some of them. So those were some of the things that I'd say at the start. But perhaps the main point is that I don't think that sickness was ever part of God's original plan at all. I think sickness is an enemy. Yes, at the very back. <laughs> this is a really good question. You just talked about the age of responsibility. Where does generational sin fit in with that? Do you know what the honest answer is? I don't know. I don't know. And I think I'd want to be cautious about setting up a big doctrine of the age of responsibility because, of course, the Bible does also teach original sin. Um, but we're heading into some fairly deep theological waters there. That's a good question. Um, I would recommend Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology in best answer to that question. Okay. You're a massive round of applause. Thank you, Adrian. All right, thank you. Thanks very much. Some of the things Adrian was saying there just wanted to make me worship. It's just amazing, aren't they, like, to think that we're living and breathing right now because of God and we actually have a rational explanation. We don't have to leave our brains at the church door before we come in. 
Um, we have a, a, a faith that can hold up to testing, hold up to questions, because it is the truth. It stands firm. Um, so I, I think most of us here have been with us over these three days, and um, we've had a great time, haven't we? We've had um, really kind of different mix of people, of prayer, of teaching, of inspiration. And I think today has been great just to an- end it with a kind of real missional slant, with actually this isn't just for us, this is for those who are not yet with us, um, those who may be with us when we have festivals like this over the coming decades, um, your friends, your neighbours, your colleagues. And I think it's a wonderful place to end. I thought what would be nice now is if, if you're happy to just get in twos and threes, the last three minutes, what's one take away for you? What's one take home? What one thing is going to change in your life as a result of maybe these seminars or the weekend? It, it could be something really small, really practical, maybe something from today, maybe something from the other seminars. What's one thing that you're going to take home away with you this weekend? could be a prophetic word, could be something you know, I've just got to do this when I get back. Go, you've got two or three minutes, and then we'll finish. <laughs>